Welcome to Books, Broads, and Booze. This is your host, Jamie Bennett. Today I'm with Monica. Hello, hello. The lovely and vivacious Monica. <laughs> we will be discussing Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind. Monica, did you want to give a brief overview of the book for everyone? Yes, it is about the study and the science of psychedelic substances, how we can use them to treat a fear of death, addiction, depression, and there's also some reports of experiences in there. It's very, very interesting. Awesome. Thank you so much, Monica. I had originally read Michael Pollan's book, Omnivore's Dilemma, eons ago, and I loved it. He is a journalist, so he approaches a subject, he researches it, he interviews people, he does a lot of in-depth analysis on his research. I really enjoyed Omnivore's Dilemma because I love food. <laughs> so I was really intrigued uh, to read this book and I was not disappointed at all. So today I have uh, provided some questions from Lit Lovers, a website. You can go to their website and view the, the discussion questions as well. And up first is why are so many of us intent on escaping our own consciousness? Consider author Michael Pollan's statement that if everyday waking conscious is but one of several possible ways to construct the world, then perhaps there is value in cultivating a great amount of neurodiversity. What does Pollan mean and how does consciousness shape our view of the world around us? Want to start us off, Monica? Yes, and I think that many of us are intent on escaping our own consciousness because we are experiencing a lack of wonder. So our brain is efficient, and we get into habits, and certain things have been known, he says, to bring us into the moment, like travel, art, and nature. And when we're in the moment, we all know that feeling, that like, oh my gosh, feeling. And it's a good feeling to have. It makes you feel alive. The wow moment. Yeah. And I think many of us are so stuck in rut and routine and basically just trying to survive that we all are craving a little bit more of that magic and wonder. Awesome. Now, last winter we read Flatland by Edwin Abbott. And we discussed how we are limited our experience of the world by our own biology and our own brain chemistry and we had a we had a lively discussion Monica and I did on that one it was, <laughs> most people read that book and they're like oh I this book it. was so terrible I hated it I can't it was the worst hundred pages I've ever read and we loved it <laughs> we were like oh, it's just you know how you perceive things and how you're looking at it and so we all know that like humans we see the world differently than you know an insect or a cat or a dog and uh, each one of us individually experiences the world differently we're limited by our own neurochemistry we're limited by our own brain experiences and he was talking about how um you know somebody can see colors differently and like i don't differentiate colors as well as an artist does and, you know, he talks about different neural diversities, such as synesthesia, where people naturally combined sights and sounds, like uh, words have 
flavor or sounds have color and some of us just you know don't happen to have that sorry and then there's the opposite uh Annika did you want to talk about your experience with that yes I'm on the very opposite end of the spectrum and have aphantasia which literally means my third eye is blind like I have um no visual no visual imagination I do have an imagination but there's no pictures in my mind. I can't imagine my child's face or the color blue. And like when I was little, I had an imaginary friend, but I never saw it. It wasn't visible to me. So that's the other end of the spectrum and shows how all of our brains are so very different. And it colors our reality. It completely colors our reality. And uh, physicists have proven that there's, you know, multiple dimensions, yet we... We have no way of acknowledging or experiencing those multiple dimensions, although they exist. So the follow-up question that he had to question one was that, Pollan writes that children approach reality with the wide-eyed astonishment of an adult on psychedelics. And uh, what is he referring to here? I really liked this question because we all know how young children are. And we often wish that we could be like that again and capture that innocence and that curiosity. And he uses a really good analogy that adults have spotlight consciousness where we can focus on something and we can be predictive about it. And children have a lantern consciousness. They take in a great deal of information in a wide field and they process it not with predictive thought because they don't have a lot of experience to back that up to have those predictions. So they're just absorbing it in and using all of their senses to gather information. Um, they're very good at outside of the box thinking because all of us as adults know that, you know, this plus this equals this and our brains only work that way. So when we're faced with a problem that's difficult to solve by conventional means, it's hard for our brains to get out of that pattern thinking, where children don't have those patterns. Right. As adults, our brains have learned shortcuts. And so it says, don't worry about this. We've already done that. Here's the path to the end. And children haven't developed all those neural pathways. They haven't learned all those shortcuts yet. So they literally see the world differently than we do yeah he talks about the the uh moving mask where it seems like the face moves in different directions where you know kids don't experience that because they haven't quite learned and made all those neural pathways i loved the show brain games on netflix and so often my brain has played me a fool. <laughs> I'm like, oh yes, my brain can be so easily tricked. <laughs> so I, I found it really intriguing when he talks about, you know, like children really experience the reality more realistically than adults do. And I was like, yeah. Huh? Yeah, they're technically yeah. more conscious than we are. And I think that that's just proven because we are all so stuck in our routines and not in the present moment, which is where consciousness and awareness lies. Right, so on to question three. 
Other than psychedelics, Pollen says we can also achieve neurodiversity through meditation and prayer. Have you ever had a transcendental experience through either? And uh, I will say that I've come close. And boy, boy, after this book, I really want to start a rigorous meditation practice. Uh, I'm like, wow, yes, I really want to experience that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I definitely agree. I do meditate. Um, I wouldn't say I've had a, a transcendental experience. I'm a little bit like the author in that he's curious and wants to experience the mystical but seems to not quite be able to touch it but I will say that having been a person with extreme anxiety and depression almost to the point of not being able to function that meditation literally saved my life Uh and that I do at times feel a very profound sense of peace which I guess that could be, you know, transcendental. It's not my normal right. feeling. And I'm not the perfect meditator. I mean, I've got the monkey mind and I have to really bring myself back down to it. But I find that I do much better and I feel much calmer and more myself when I do meditate regularly. I, I've had that sort of feeling like your whole body relaxes and you're just like, Oh, I've been here before. I know what this is. I'm like, ah, uh, I'm I'm here in the moment. This is my time. Isn't it funny how you don't know you're not relaxed until you're relaxed? <laughs> like you can just feel the tension like dripping out of your body and it's like, wow, I was so uptight just now. Yeah, the uh, I've had the guided meditation where they talk about like on the beach with the water washing over, you know, I'm like, Wow, I can really feel it, like, washing away. That's crazy. This is all in my head. (laughs) All of our reality is in our head. (laughs) So much of what happens is just all inside my head. So on to uh, question four. After psychotropic drugs leave the body and users come off the trip, what kinds of residual effects do many users continue to experience? So I, I put in here, uh, there was a trial by Yasmin Schmidt and Matthias Beachy, and the conclusion of that was, in healthy research subjects, the administration of a single dose of LSD, 200 micrograms, in a safe setting was subjectively considered a personally meaningful experience that they had long-lasting subjective positive results. And that trial registration ID I wrote down here. That was NCT 01878942. And I found it interesting that uh, there was also in their report, because I looked it up online, Mm -hmm. that about 10% of U.S. residents have reported having used LSD at least once in their lives. So you had... Well, what I remember from, from the people who talked about it is after their experience, they felt more open they had more flexibility of thought and one of the examples that I thought was great was an atheist who did LSD and felt like she was held in the light of God 
who who said that after coming off of the trip, it was still indeed true and she was still indeed an atheist. (laughs) And I just thought that explains it perfectly, that openness of thought and to other possibilities. Yeah, uh, there, there didn't seem to be any research, at least research he presented, that had negative effects for the users that they were doing, uh, there's a lot of names in the book. There's a lot of trials in the book. There's a lot of research in the book that he goes to. He goes to researchers that are working for John Hopkins in, uh, you know, clinical trials, hospital settings. And he also goes to researchers who've been working underground since the 1970s and before. So, Sometimes it you get lost in the details and the names, and so I was just like, well, I'm going to look up one of them, <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and I'm going to write it down and read it. <laughs> so uh, question number five, have you ever taken psychotropic drugs? I'm like, no, but after this book, I am very intrigued. So much was emphasized on God, set and setting, and I would definitely want it to be a religious intention and ceremony. Uh, I was really intrigued by the Good Friday experiment, and I'm like, ah, oh, man, if I was to ever try it, that is how I would want it to go down. <laughs> <laughs> well, I ha- was very lucky, and I have I had a lot of experience <laughs> from a pretty young age. And what's really weird is. Even at a young age, the very first time I tried it, I was very lucky, and whether intentionally or not, the people who I were with said the most important thing to have a good time is to be in an environment where you're safe, to not have a lot of people around. So either they intuitively knew the importance of set and setting or had been taught. So I had a guide, so to speak. Now, another thing that's very interesting about psychedelics is they're very suggestible. So researchers notice that if you have like a Freudian therapist who's doing psychedelic research, you're going to have those kind of results. And so, you know, as a kid, you're going into it with a party type attitude. And although it was mystical and amazing and wonderful, I didn't have those profound intentions at the time. So I didn't have those profound results. I would also like to point out that having a slightly addictive personality. (laughs) This is one thing that, you know, it's not addictive. You don't crave it. There's no like LSD junkies running around out there. And it was very meaningful and life-changing. And I think opened me up to a lot of questions that I didn't even know I had about reality and why things are the way they are. And it was just, I'm glad I went through it, but after reading the book, I really, really would like to do it with a guide, with intention and ceremony, like you said, and I think it would be a much more meaningful experience. I I feel like it would be something that everyone should do after reading this book. <laughs> I do too, because we're all so rigid, you know? And and just the idea that multiple things can be true at the same time, that openness right, that right. you get, 
would benefit society as a whole, you know? I can see why I think it's coming up in a question where Timothy O'Leary is like, acid for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So let's take a quick break from the book and talk about our booze this week. So I bought a a bottle. It's called Gazella. And it says Vinho Verde. And I believe it's a product of Portugal. And uh, it says that it's a light, refreshing, young, and flora white, served chilled. It is amazing. I, I agree. So <laughs> good. It's not too sweet. Very crisp. It's a hot day here. It is perfect for summer. I will I fill up our glasses right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, it is, it is quite the, the summer wine yeah. and uh, quite delicious. So highly recommend. It's a little sparkly. It's like a little bubbly. It's, it's perfect. Yeah. Agreed. So, yes. Our next question does talk about Timothy Leary. Oh, wait. Yeah. So, I had never heard of Timothy Leary. I didn't know who he was at all, but I had heard his catchphrase, which is turn on, tune in, drop out. And I didn't really even understand what that meant. And, uh... I'm like, I I have no idea, but reading this book, I can kind of see where maybe Nixon was like, ah, it's a bunch of druggies and hippies. (laughs) Like, ah. (laughs) Yeah. Did did you have any? I I didn't really know about, I mean, I've heard the name, but I didn't really know about him specifically. But a part of me, the part of me that says everything happens for a reason, I feel like he was a pivotal character in this narrative of LSD. And I feel like sometimes the most authentic people are the ones who make the waves, where most of us are like, ooh, don't say that, and you're going too far, and you're crossing the boundary, right? But that's where the change comes from. So I feel like he was authentic, and he did create a radical change to the dismay of many professionals and researchers whose wonder drug was now tainted by the uncontrollable youth, you know? Right. And I am not a a big believer in the great man theory. And I don't think that social change happens just from one person that there, there's a movement, things are happening and sure there's one person who could be a spokesman who is, who can be the leader for a generation. The 1960s, I mean, it wasn't really that long ago, but it it was pretty long ago. And there was was a lot of conflict going on. There was a lot of divide in our country. Our country was extremely divided. There there was three major categories of division. It was blacks versus whites, liberals versus conservatives, and old versus young. And the young people were seeing sex, drugs, and rock and roll, openly rejecting all of the social norms and the older people in society just felt like this was this great threat that their their whole culture, their society was doomed because of these drugs. And I, let's see, I looked it up. There was a, ew, I can't find it. Uh, New Jersey Narcotic Drug Study Commission about LSD said that LSD was the greatest threat facing the country today and more dangerous than the Vietnam War. 
which blows my mind. I'm like, <laughs> well, it can be if it threatens your support for the Vietnam War and the status quo. Right. Which I think LSD made more people feel, and I don't think we've talked about this yet, it made people feel like we were all one, that we were connected. And you can't fight a war if you're all one with everyone. Right. That's extremely true. And Michael Pollan does talk about in the book about how the generation that Timothy Leary influenced is now the generation that's in charge of everything now. Yeah. So people that had those experiences are now the leaders and, you know, the shakers, the ones making policies and reforms. So perhaps, you know, he does have a lasting positive influence, even though there's been such a negative connotation against him for so long. Ah, so now we can talk about some of the terms of LSD's medicinal benefits. What have scientists discovered? So I wrote in here that James Fadiman's book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, and that he wrote it's helped alcoholics, it's helped terminally ill patients, it's helped with uh, major depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, and smoking cessation. Seems like a wonder drug. <laughs> yes, it does. And what I wanted to add in this section is that, so research, when research is being done on something, a drug, usually the pharmaceutical companies are footing out the money for the research. And they do like drugs for chronic conditions because we're going to pay for those repeatedly. The thing with treating with psychedelic substances is that Usually it's a one-time thing or maybe like a once-a-year thing. It's, it's instantaneous, the positive benefits that you get from it. And a lot of these substances are found in nature. For example, mushrooms, psilocybin. So there's really no money to be made from it. And so I think we need to decide as a society, like we do in many, many situations what is good for the benefit of society and what makes us money <laughs> so much of our policies are set based on money yeah and even as far as research and stuff goes you have to have that researched money you have to have those grants right in order to do the research it's how the system is set up which you know yay applaud for all these underground people who have been gathering information for all these years but I think one of the coolest things that you said was, um, you know, treatment for like addiction, depression, PTSD, fear of death, um, the cancer research where people had terminal cancer diagnosis and did a psychedelic session had totally lost their fear of death and were able to live out the end of their life and actually live it. And, and those were clinical hospital uh, trials that went on with the terminally ill ca- cancer patients. And Michael Pollan interviews a gentleman and his wife in the book and talks about their very experience. His wife was very nervous about him going in because she thought that if he went in there and he just accepted death, that he wasn't going to fight his cancer and that 
she wasn't ready to let him go. And he said that it was a completely different experience for him, whereas he still wanted to fight. But he knew that this is this is it though. It's it's not going to get better. And he felt a peace of, with death instead of a fight with it. It was more of like, I'm going to enjoy my time with you while I can. And I think it's a very Buddhist philosophy to accept what is. We only have this discord and these problems when we are in resistance to what is. And I think that meditation and psychedelics can help us see reality for what it really is and see it with wonder and accept it and live from there instead of constantly worrying about what's not true. And then we get trapped in those, um, you know, those spiral, negative spiral type thinking and it's, it's not really living. I agree. A, a lot of rumination happens mm-hmm. and people get into you know a, a spiral of negative thoughts and comparison they're not present in the moment they don't feel connected to other people they don't feel connected to uh, the universe yeah one of the other cool things that he had in this book was this graph about the way that your brain works he talks a lot about entropy of the brain and chaos and how a little bit of chaos is good for our mind you know too much rigidity and we've got like OCD and too much entropy and we've got you know psychosis and so he shows this graph of what our brain looks like normally with our he uses the analogy of like sledding down a hill and you get runs right where you're going down the same path over and over and and it makes a run so when your brain is on psychedelics so you don't go down those runs you're in new country right and you've got these connections forming in parts of the brain where they don't normally form and it's like a huge um it's a wake up and a new perspective on on your life and what's around you and that was super interesting to me that that was measurable and I don't know why I brought that up other than I thought it was really cool. <laughs> that, is, that is really great because that leads into question number nine, which is how do psychotropic drugs work in the brain? Oh. And he, he does a lot of science in the book. So, uh, but he talks about there is a decreased blood flow and electrical activity in the brain, which is the opposite of what they thought would happen. There, they found that the brain's default mode network, which they call... D-M-N. It's a group of brain structures found in the frontal and prefrontal cortex. So that's all the decision-making part of the brain in that it's responsible for our ego and our sense of self. It lights up when we daydream and when we self-reflect. But when tripping, the DMV slows down and the ego is gone and the boundaries between self and the world dissolve for people who are having a mystical experience. The more that the ego section slows down, the more mystical experience that a person happens, the more they feel one with everything. And I have read this, that is what happens when we're meditating. That's what happens when we're in a large group during um, 
prayers, religious experiences. Uh, when gentlemen travel to Mecca and they do the prayer uh, circle, uh, that's what they're experiencing. This is, you know, part of the mystical experience of of what happens, and uh, that's how the psychotropic drugs also work. So. I thought what was super interesting is it's also measurable for just the memory of that experience. Like when he had his brain hooked up and was being monitored, just thinking about one of his, um, I think it was the mushroom experience, produced noticeable effects in his brain waves. <laughs> so it's something that we can always go back to and it's a touchstone and I think that um that's important that awareness and that going back to and that remembering because we've already discovered that our brain likes patterns and we get stuck in these patterns so they use the analogy of shaking up a snow globe is what it does it's like gets things moving and shaking around in a different way so true, so true. He, that includes question number 10, where the author, Michael Pollan, uses himself as a guinea pig. And I felt like he came back from his experiences slightly disappointed. And I have to say that I think it's because I feel like he enjoyed the experiences, but he's too analytical about them. He was uh, trying to analyze the mystical experience and he talks about the mystical experience questionnaire <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of an oxymoron isn't it <laughs> and just because he you know the fact that he has the questionnaire and the fact that he's going through the questionnaire to determine was this a mystical experience and he's like well based on this questionnaire it is but i really don't feel that it was and i'm like I think we would all know if we had a mystical experience or not. I don't think we need the questionnaire. <laughs> well, and I think that's really funny that you say that. And also, he went into each experience with quite a bit of fear. So I do believe that that may have had something to do with it. And also that desire to have a mystical experience instead of the letting go and not having resistance and experiencing what it is. I believe affected the results and I can totally relate to this guy right because that's what happened to me I I did do psychedelic drugs at a young age I did them again on my 30th birthday and again once again when I was in my 40s and so when I was in you know that was not too long ago <laughs> that I tried it but that desire and that wanting of something to happen instead of just letting go, I think that's the difference. And I think that would be the need of having a guide and a safe space to let go. And going into it with too much fear and too much analysis and worried about the results may have affected it. But I do think he feels like it was a worthwhile thing for him to have gone through. Yeah, he, he had an overall positive reaction to his experiences, of which our, our last discussion question and our last discussion topic point is uh, your opinion, LSD, good or bad? And I, I kind of agree with the author. At the end of the book, he talks about how 
he doesn't think they should just be wildly open to everyone. That there is a lot of uh, research that shows that set and setting are really important along with your intentions. And that there should be trained guides that can uh, help you through this experience. And that if you really want it, because uh, almost every person that they spoke with at the very beginning, somebody had intense fear. They had a very strong fear reaction. And the guy would say, don't run away from the fear. Go to the fear. It's part of the experience. Confront it. And then uh, the fear would go away. And then they would have, you know, these profound experiences. So I think it's really important. Uh, was it California that was training guides? Yeah. Yes, I saw that. Yeah, so uh, trained guides with some sort of certification because you need somebody who's knows what they're talking about, I guess. I would feel more confident that way anyway. I, will. I don't know. Maybe somebody else doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> I want to slip a paper that says you know what you're doing, and then I'm safe. You're not going to do anything weird to me while I'm off in La La Land. Right. And then, uh, really, you know, uh, having the the flight plan, I guess. Yeah. That that was what was really important. And I agree with all of those things. I definitely think that it is a good thing. Um, I think that one of the biggest benefits that I would like to see researched and put into use is microdosing. And when we talked a little bit about the brain chemistry, um, LSD links to the serotonin receptors in the brain. So there is a lot of interest right now in treating depression and anxiety and OCD and addiction and all of these things with microdosing levels of these psychedelics where they will it won't give you the the tripping effect you're still going to be in your everyday reality but it you'll feel good <laughs> right they, they were specifically talking about people who experience non-treatable depression mm -hmm. people who have severe depression chronic depression that doesn't go away and no matter what treatments they've given their depression symptoms do not alleviate so they've had uh, some trials done with microdosing that have, sh that have shown benefits. And like any new drug, uh, new therapy that comes out, I mean, people thought that radiological elements were amazing back in the day and they had tonics of them and it that ended up giving people cancer. So I feel, I feel a little, you know, hesitant about jumping on the bag wagon, waving the flag like, woo! Let's do this for everyone. I'm Timothy Leary. <laughs> yes, everyone drops a acid. Well, and I well, think that they do show that there is DMT, which was another compound we didn't talk about. We talked a little bit about LSD and psilocybin, but DMT is another hallucinogen like it's in ayahuasca, and that is naturally occurring in the human body. Uh, I have a glossary of terms here. Uh, the DMT or N-N-dimethyltryptamine. Tamine is a rapid onset, intense, and short-acting psychedelic compound, sometimes referred to as the businessman's trip. Mm -hmm. This tryptamine molecule is found in many plants and animals for reasons not well understood, which is something that we didn't discuss, was that psychedelic compounds 
are commonly found throughout the entire world. That is exactly right. And indigenous people have often used them in ceremony to help their people. And each area has its own naturally occurring substance. And I think for us, it's mushrooms. But in other places, it's like ayahuasca or iboga. I mean, every area of the planet has its own version of it. And I just happen to agree with nature. And I think that, you know, nature probably put it there for a reason. (laughs) Right, and humans have been using these compounds in religious ceremonies for, you know, eons. Right. They've, They've been around... We found them, and we used them, and there are certain tribal areas in the United States that still use ayahuasca in religious ceremonies. Yeah. So. There is actually an ayahuasca church in Orlando, Florida, if anyone's interested. I plan to visit someday. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. <laughs> May get me back to Florida. I don't know. I don't deal well with the heat. (laughs) All in all, I just think it's a really cool book because it takes something that has been so stigmatized and tried to look at it from an outside perspective, outside of the stigma, and to rationally really look at it. A very analytical. Right, which is how he said his mind works, materialistic (laughs) and analytical. And I think that we need... Us artsy people over here need somebody <laughs> like that on our side. You know what I mean? Like, I can tell you all day long, oh, we're all one and it's wonderful and the colors are so pretty. But, <laughs> you know, we need somebody to say, hey, there are some benefits here. And here's the studies that, you, you know, you don't have time to look up. <laughs> I, I definitely felt like my mind has changed reading this book. Uh, if you would have asked me before I read the book if I would ever consider, you know, uh, doing psychedelics, I would be like, no. <laughs> I'm a middle-aged mom with two boys. Psst, I don't have time for that stupid shit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm like, oh, wow, that's really intriguing. Oh, perhaps I should learn that sort of breath moment. And like, oh, you know what, though? I, I'm kind of hesitant about the whole throwing up stuff. Like, <laughs> Can, can we do something low dose to make sure that doesn't happen? Right. <laughs> yeah. I was like, duh, yeah. It was just, I feel a lot differently after having read the entire book. So I, I'm very, th- very grateful th- for the suggestion. It was a great book. It's been a great discussion. Was there any parting words that you have, Monica? Hey, I think we, we talked about it all just I don't know. Love your neighbor. That's my parting <laughs> words. <laughs> we are all one. We are. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you again next month. Have a great time. Bye-bye.